You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about the three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. John 6, 16 through 21. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, If you haven't heard already, um, I ended up getting COVID uh, this week on Wednesday. And uh, we did try, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend. And uh, our preaching team had all different responsibilities. And even my backup plan pastors, I called also themselves have COVID. So this is it. I'm recording in my space here in my bedroom, which is going to be my little home for a while, probably until about Monday. And I'm, I'm doing fine, kind of like a minor flu. I've got this great resonant Johnny Cash voice for preaching today. So um, and I'm being really well taken care of by my wife, Alita. She is truly a gift, and she's pretty amazing. Um, you can pray for, uh, of course, a quick recovery for me and as well for Alita that she's protected. Our biggest hope from our hearts is that um, we can be healthy and strong to go to our son Michael's graduation on Sunday, June 12th, as he graduates as a senior from Seattle Pacific University. Well, today, make sure if you haven't already done it, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 16, which has just been read to you. And I want to start with prayer, because we definitely need prayer. So let's pray together. God, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm here in my room. I'm recording days ahead of Sunday morning, and you're hearing my prayer right now as well as you will hear it again um, on Sunday morning. There's been a lot of heartache in our world this, this week. God, we still lift up to you the violence taking place in the Ukraine. Um, God, we pray for the end of war. Our hearts go out to the violence of people being shot in a supermarket and the violence of people being shot at a church potluck and the violence of children being shot in their schoolroom. Our hearts are angry and aggrieved, and we feel at a complete loss. And we cry out to you, God, when um, our leadership doesn't seem to know how best to lead forward, we call out to you to do what is right. And God, we pray this morning that um, in my weakness and in this kind of less than optimal way of hearing your word, that maybe even somehow your spirit shows up in power. And we give you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just start by just saying this when um, it's interestingly fitting. This is the week I'm preaching this message in this way. Um, When I was about 10 years old, there was this great older man in our church uh, that I grew up at. His name was J.M. Sykes. J.M. Sykes. And he told us kids this story about coming home from World War I. 
He was a World War I survivor, an older man, while there was an, a worldwide pandemic that at that time was called the Spanish flu, which killed millions and millions of people worldwide. And J.M. told us kids about how many of his young friends were on their way home from World War I. They had survived World War I, and they were happy to have survived it. But on the way home, taking trains and, and boats and buses, they got sick with the Spanish flu, and his friends died. And it left him with the feeling that the chaos of the world was stronger than God. He admitted that to us little church kids. And hearing his story, I'll be honest, at the age of 10, <laughs> in the context of my very white 1970s suburban existence, it left me thinking, I can't imagine living in that kind of kind of chaos, but I also can't imagine being in the place where I'm wondering if the chaos of the world was stronger than God. <laughs> I just hadn't lived a little. Then the last two years of life happened. In the space of the last two years, I, I tragically lost my little brother, Paul, on Christmas Eve to a really tragic drowning accident in the ocean. I, like you, we entered a new worldwide pandemic with a long shelter in place. I bubbled with just my family, seeing barely anyone for a long period of time, not seeing my isolated dad, who was all by himself in his 80s for over a year, naively thinking that our country was going to fight in a united way against a united enemy of COVID, only to watch us splinter apart, even more tragically. My dad ending up being rushed to the ER and then living under hospice care for nine months and then losing my brother-in-law, Pete, four days before Christmas Eve this year, um, losing a local pastor friend who had spent a lot of time encouraging me to COVID in these last six months. And then my dad graduating out of hospice care and needing to find a good place for him to live and assisted living only to have him escape and to spend 24 terrifying hours, or at least an overnight of terrifying hours, wondering if he'd get back safely with their staff. And finally, I have COVID. And I now know that feeling in the pit of my stomach where it feels like the chaos of the world is stronger than God. Feeling like the chaos is, it's going to win. And feeling it so strongly that I will admit to you that I have had moments if I didn't have strong mental discipline, there were moments I felt like maybe I, I could lose it a little bit. I'm sorry to have to say this. I wish I didn't have to, but the full range of the human experience, it's going to include moments and maybe even seasons when the chaos, well, where it feels like the chaos is going to win. Now, we know the scripture teaches us that it's okay to admit, like we read in the Psalms so often. We know it's okay to admit our rawest feelings to ourselves, to others, like the people of this church, and as well as to God. We can admit it feels like the chaos is going to win in this pandemic and the rumors that swirl about about the next one that may be in our future at some point. It feels like the chaos is going to win and the lost jobs and the expenses that just keep rising and rising. It feels like the chaos is going to win. And what they're now saying is in a, in a mental and emotional health pandemic that's hitting us and our children. It feels like the chaos is going to win. 
in the pain of war in Ukraine. Black people being gunned down for just being black. Church people being gunned down for a racialized difference in Southern California. And children, children gunned down in school. It feels like the chaos is going to win when we have friends who have moved away or friends who don't want to talk to us anymore and loved ones who have died and the strains on relationships that really do feel like they're coming to an end. And it is really easy to end up thinking the chaos is going to win, which leaves us with the obvious question, is the chaos going to win? So we're continuing this study. Look again, look closer at Jesus. It's in the book of John, and we're studying the sign miracles in John that John says, he says, quote, these are signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. And we're doing this study because I think after all the things we've been through, we need to double back and we need to look again at Jesus to see, have we missed some things? Have we forgotten some things? Are there things we need to discover we've never seen before? So let's go and explore John six sixteen. Now, this is the fifth sign miracle, and it follows the fourth sign miracle, which is the feeding of the 5,000, which Nick Hart's going to hit on June the 12th when we're at a graduation in Seattle. But before we examine this fifth miracle related to a stormy sea, we need to be really good students of the first century worldview of the seas and what they represented in people's thinking. I don't know if you know this, but chaotic waters is actually the first image that we encounter in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter one, verse two. And here's what it says. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The word darkness in Hebrew is the word koshek, which is the word for misery and destruction. Misery and destruction was over the surface of the deep. It describes a state of disorder and uncertainty that only an all-powerful God could come along and somehow tame. It's a condition that's both uninhabitable and unwelcoming to life. Well, that's not the last place you see it. It's actually a thread that follows all the way through the Old Testament. As, for instance, we hear that Pharaoh's army, as they're chasing down the Israelites, they are described as if they are themselves chaotic waters. You can read about it in Exodus 15 and as well as in Psalm 18. We read also as Isaiah and other prophets, they describe dangerous and warring nations as if they are chaotic waters. And so from the worldview of the disciples, they very much viewed the Sea of Galilee as symbolic of the chaos waters. This kind of place of overwhelming forces of doom and danger and potential death. So with that in mind, we jump into our passage where the disciples witness something amazing. John simply says that by evening, John hadn't reconnected with the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000. And so they got into a boat without Jesus trying to seize the remaining daylight in order to get safely across the the lake with the sea of Galilee. And Mark's gospel tells us that in Mark 6, 46, it says that after leaving them, he, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray, which means from that hillside, Mark says Jesus could see from the hill, the storm and what the disciples were going through in that storm. Now the sea of Galilee, it's not that big. 
it's about pro- approximately in a, like a lake in California. It's about the size of Lake Almanor. And I know some of us go to Lake Almanor, so you kind of know the size. It is interestingly about 600 feet below sea level. So what happens is, is when the sun sets and then the cool air starts to rush in from the west, it runs down the hills and it can create very, very strong winds. Think of how wild the sea, if you go hiking in the Sierras, you got to be ready for anything. It's that kind of wildness on the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples who wanted to get across the chaos before dark get stuck in even bigger chaos, rowing into very strong winds in very, very rough water. Now, John doesn't say the storm scared them. But he zooms in on something else that he says, this is what terrified them. They saw the form of a human being walking towards them. Not a guy standing in ankle deep water on the shoreline and mistaking that as if he was in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee, which critics of the Bible and critics of Bible's miracles say, oh, he was just standing. No. It says in the text, he was walking about three and a half miles into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And they see this, and then as they, this person gets closer, they could make out it looked like their rabbi, Jesus. And this leaves them terrified. Why were they terrified? Well, what does it mean that Jesus is skirting over the chaos like it's nothing? If Jesus has mastery over the chaos, doesn't that mean he has mastery over everything? And if he has mastery over any everything, can he be trusted? Or is he very, very dangerous? They're terrified. But right after feeling that sheer terror, Jesus says this to them in the text. You can see it. He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. It's I. It is I is the are the exact same words as the words I am. I am. Does that ring a bell for any of you? The first time we ever hear this in the Bible is when Moses is being asked by God to be his mouthpiece and his shepherd to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, what's your name? These are the same word God used to give his personal intimate name to Moses as God was preparing to be the deliverer of his people. I am. See, Jesus was telling his disciples that he was the exact same trustworthy rescuing God of Israel skirting over the chaos as the God who had come to Moses and had rescued Israel. Exact same God. And this amazing event pointed to something more ultimate than the event, which, by the way, ended with Jesus getting in the boat, and then the next thing they know, they're on the other side of the shore, all done. It points to something more ultimate. Do you see what it is? Chaos cannot and will not prevail before the person of Jesus. Chaos cannot overwhelm and defeat the friends of Jesus. Because Jesus can bring his people through the chaos by bringing them protection and safety and to bring them into order and into life. And this is the big thing that we need to hear today. I, don't, I, need, I need to hear myself say it. 
chaos has nothing on Jesus. No matter what the chaos is in our life, as we look at the scene and Jesus skirting over the chaos, it tells us chaos has got nothing over the Lord of life. Nothing. Jesus has final say over the chaos. In the end, the chaos of your personal life, whatever it may be, will bow to the mastery and the authority of Jesus applied in his way and in his time. In the end, the chaos of the violence in this world, whatever form it takes against the innocents, it will bow to the mastery of Jesus' authority applied in his way and in his time. In the end, the chaos of the existential threats, pandemics, shifts in global weather, asteroid strikes, whatever they may be, will bow to the mastery of Jesus' authority applied in his way and in his time. This broken world shall be overcome. And to exactly quote Jesus in the same book, John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. The word he used in the original language is you will have affliction. In this world, you'll have affliction. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, you know what, though? It would be fair of you to ask, I mean, Andy, how is all of this more than just, you know, churchy words? And it's going to make us feel better for a few more moments, but it doesn't really defeat real world chaos. How is that going to work? Well, here's how. Let me just lead you with three thoughts that come from how God's word describes this for us. The first one is this, is Jesus mastery by intervention. Mastery by intervention. Many of us here worshiping in this space have Jesus stories. In fact, if we were to stop right now and everybody go, hey, if you really have a Jesus story, raise your hand. First of all, we see a lot of hands go up. And second of all, if everybody shared their story, you'd be there for a while. We all have these stories of times we face great chaos and Jesus intervened and he put a stop to it. He, he put a stop to it in a way that we can't explain as anything other than that was a Jesus thing intervention. Sure, he didn't exactly intervene in the way or the time that we preferred, but Jesus intervened and he stopped it. That's one way. Jesus mastery by intervention. But there's a second way, and that is this. Jesus is mastery by affection. His mastery by affection. What do I mean by that? St. Ignatius, who was current to Martin Luther 500 years ago, he made an, an order within the Catholic Church, which was all about trying to create ways to have spiritual formation, people who could walk intimately with Jesus and to be formed by that relationship. Even if they couldn't read a Bible or have any other things, he created these practices. And in his students of spiritual formation, he gave them this thing to adopt, which he called the principle and foundation as a simple narrative of how to view their walk with Jesus for the rest of their days. And here's what it says. This is a part of it. He says in the principle and foundation, he says, all things in this world are gifts from God, all things, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Our only desire and our one choice is this, I want and I choose what better leads to the deepening of God's life in me. Look, we've got examples of this in the Bible. We read of how Jacob wrestled the angel of God and God 
touched his hip and threw his hip out of socket and it remained out of socket for the rest of his life. It, God didn't intervene and change the limp for Jacob, but that limp came along with a greater love and a dependence on God in the rest of his days, Jacob, our own Jesus. He took the cross, even though he could have escaped it. And by taking the cross, it deepened God, the father's pride in the son and perfected Jesus authority in the universe through his suffering. Paul, the apostle, he had a thorn in the flesh that he asked God. I asked, that's not, that's too, too tame a word. He pleaded with God to remove it. Like, God, you, I will be more effective for you. And God's answer was, no, I'm not going to remove it. But you will experience a deepening of how huge my grace and my love will be towards you through your thorn in the flesh. This is the kind of mastery that more deeply proving how close Jesus is, how much he loves us and how committed he is to form us into the kinds of beings who can be with him and enjoy him forever. So how does Jesus rule the chaos in real world terms? Well, mastery by intervention. He can do that. Mastery by affection. And the third one is this mastery by recreation. You see, no matter how Jesus reveals his mastery over the chaos in our lifetime, he's going to totally recreate the heavens and the earth into a place where all chaos, which includes death, is going to end. You see, in addition to the chaos waters that are in the Old Testament, there is also this image of the river of life that winds its way through Eden. You read about it in Genesis, right along with the chaos waters, this river of life. And we read about it also often throughout the Old Testament, where the prophets use it as a picture that's the exact opposite of the chaos waters. It's a picture of shalom, peace, and security. Well, we don't read much about the, the, the river of life in the New Testament, but you know where it ends up appearing one last time? In the last book of the Bible, in the last chapter of the Bible, we read in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Here's what we read. Revelation 22, 1 through 3. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. See, God's word tells us that because of the masterful reign of Jesus, the chaos waters will not be the final reality. The final reality is the river of life and the healing of the nations and the removal of the curse. That's the final reality. Now, here's what this means. So here I am. I'm stuck in my bedroom for some days with, with COVID. And this novel virus that has never been on the planet and has traveled the globe and hurt a lot of people and killed people, it's finally found me. 
And I'm not going to lie. It's the temptation is to feel bad about my situation. The temptation is to look at this new additional challenge of life just piling on. It's just more chaos that's going to bring more chaos. And to find myself continually astonished by the power of chaos that continually just seems to keep finding me. But, you know, it's really interesting how John and Matthew and Mark's version of this miracle, it doesn't mention the disciples being afraid of the chaos waters. Um, There's other miracles Jesus does in boats on the Sea of Galilee where they, they were terrified of the chaos waters, but not in this one. They were more terrified, more astonished by Jesus skirting over the chaos. And as I sit here in isolation, I realize that every day, the good days and the bad days, brings me a choice. Every day I have this choice. What astonishment most captivates me? Am I captivated by astonishment over the chaos in life? It's really easy to do. Or will I be captivated by astonishment over the person of Jesus who right in this moment, he resides within me by his spirit. He's present with me in this space and he has good things he wants to do and say and show me in this additional chaos in my life. Chaos has got nothing on Jesus And so the call to us is to learn to be more astonished by Jesus than the chaos. That's the choice every day. Look, I get it. The disciples, they got to see Jesus walking over the chaos waters and they could see with their own two eyes. And we don't, we don't get that, but we do get to gaze into everything we know about Jesus. Things the disciples didn't yet know on that sea of Galilee. We get to gaze at the fact that Jesus is able to make a way when there's no way. And we have stories in our life that prove that's true, even when we're surrounded by chaos. We get to gaze at the fact that the one who took the cross so that we might live is giving us something to gaze at when we suffer so that we can comprehend the extent of his love for us when the chaos closes in. We can gaze at the one who killed death through his resurrection. When the chaos closes in, we can gaze at the one who has set us free from our guilt and our worthlessness and our shame and is because of that, therefore able to care for us in the way of his choosing, no matter what chaos we face. It's left to us to choose how our minds and our emotions and our souls are being formed by the astonishments that most captivate us. We can be mostly formed by fear at the first hint of more chaos and then form ourselves in the kind of people who are easily crumpled, fall like a stack of a house of cards. Or we can be formed by the astonishing, the astonishing reality of our indestructible savior of our indestructible savior and be formed into the kind of people who are resilient in the face of chaos. I'm going to invite Jonathan to come on up and kind of get set to lead you in worship. And I wish I could enjoy communion with you today. I will be in spirit, but let me finish with this. In Matthew's account of this same miracle, 
some of you may know this, there's another extra little piece to it. Jesus invited, invited Peter to get out of the boat and actually, you know, skirt across the chaos waters with him. And Peter got out of the boat and he did exactly that. And as long as Peter fixed his gaze on Jesus, he walked across the chaos. But the instant Peter fixed his gaze on the wind and the waves, he sank. That's a really good picture to leave you and me. I don't know exactly what kind of chaos is swirling around you right now, but I can tell you, if you keep gazing at the chaos waters, it will take you down. But if you gaze at Jesus, the chaos waters won't take you down. Or as David observed in the 23rd Psalm, that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear evil winning. Chaos has nothing on Jesus. So let's learn. Let's get better at being more astonished by Jesus than the chaos. Let's pray. Oh, our dear Jesus and our Savior, thank you for giving me enough energy to record this message. And I pray that in the weakness of me and in the weakness of having to have a video that your spirit can show up in people's lives to bring encouragement, to bring inspiration, to draw people out, to take the steps that you're calling them to take. God, we need you. We know you are faithful and we know that you do intervene and you do show your mastery. And we are declaring our trust in that today. We love you. Thank you for being our savior and our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.